Welcome to this week's edition of Flashback Friday, your opportunity to get some good review by listening to episodes from the past that Jason has handpicked to help you today in the present and propel you into the future. Enjoy. Welcome to the Holistic Survival Show with Jason Hartman. The economic storm brewing around the world is set to spill into all aspects of our lives. Are you prepared? Where are you going to turn for the critical life skills necessary to survive and prosper? The Holistic Survival Show is your family's insurance for a better life. Jason will teach you to think independently, to understand threats, and how to create the ultimate action plan. Sudden change or worst case scenario, you'll be ready. Welcome to Holistic Survival, your key resource for protecting the people, places, and profits you care about in uncertain times. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, Jason Hartman. Welcome to the Holistic Survival Show. This is your host, Jason Hartman, where we talk about protecting the people, places, and profits you care about in these uncertain times. We have a great interview for you today, and we will be back with that in less than 60 seconds on the Holistic Survival Show. And by the way, be sure to visit our website at holisticsurvival.com. You can subscribe to our blog, which is totally free, has loads of great information, and there's just a lot of good content for you on the site. So make sure you take advantage of that at holisticsurvival.com. We'll be right back. It's my pleasure to welcome John Lieberman to the show. He's an investigative reporter for the Howard Stern Show on Sirius XM and host of Lieberman Live at Five, a weekly news radio show airing on Howard 101, crime contributor for CNN and HLN, and he's got an interesting new book about Whitey Bulger. John, welcome. How are you? Hey, Jason. Thanks for having me. Doing well. How are you doing? Yeah, good. It's great to have you on the show. You're coming to us today from New York City, right? Indeed, New York City, where there is snow and uh, and more bad weather. Yeah, and and you and you're right in the Sirius XM offices now, I believe, right? That's right. We're right in Midtown Manhattan, or or should I say, studio? <laughs> Maybe both. Both, right? a little yeah. bit of both, a little bit of both, both. offices and studio. Good stuff. Well, tell us what you're working on nowadays, John. Well, our new book, Whitey on Trial, you know, is kind of a labor of love. I was uh, a national correspondent at America's Most Wanted for seven years. And while I was there with Fox, uh, I went around the world with the FBI Whitey Bulger Task Force searching for Whitey. Of course, it turns out he was hiding in plain sight in California the whole time. But regardless, I teamed up with uh, a Boston attorney, Margaret McLean, to write this book, which, you know, chronicles... I would say a once-in-a-lifetime type trial, you know, 19 murders pinned on Whitey, convicted killers coming face-to-face in the courtroom, Whitey even writing us a letter for our book. So it's really one of those cases that just doesn't come along very often, and uh, and we spell it out in our, in our book, Whitey on Trial. And so is the, what's the government corruption angle, though? Well, look, the reality is that many in the government, uh, in the Department of Justice, knew exactly what Whitey Bulger was doing, and they looked the other way. And by doing, I mean brutal killings, amassing millions of dollars uh, in the drug trade on the streets of South Boston, and really ruling that entire area out of fear. And the reality is that some of the corruption came out in the trial, but there, there are other hints of it that we still haven't been able to get a full grasp of. And the reality is that, yes informants are incredibly important when you're talking about law enforcement, when you're talking about gathering intelligence on 
crime, both domestically and abroad. But the question is, how far can you allow your informants to go? And in this case, I would argue, and I think many would agree, that Whitey Bulger, James Whitey Bulger, was allowed to go too far. And, and so what is the reason that the government uh, acted this way? Or, or well, what I, you know, is, I mean, I guess you'll have to speculate as to their reasoning because you don't know for sure, probably. But, <laughs> but that's well, no, I can you. tell you that I can okay. tell you the reason. I sure. mean, the reality was twofold. One is that Whitey had, you know, at least one agent, John Connolly, in his pocket. They were childhood friends. And uh, Connolly's currently sitting in prison in connection with one of the murders in this case. And in fact, in our book, we have an exclusive interview with John Connolly from prison, the only one that he's done, in which he claims that he was simply the fall guy, the scapegoat, but that the corruption went much higher than him in the Department of Justice. So one reason, of course, as I said, is Whitey was friends with this agent. Another reason is that the government was hungry to get information about the Italian mafia. Uh, and they felt as if Whitey Bulger leading the Irish American mafia in South Boston could help provide them with intel on, uh, on the, uh, on the Italian mafia, which they wanted so badly because a lot of people's careers hinged on bringing down the Italian mafia in the seventies, eighties and early nineties. And so they would basically do anything to get that sort of information. Yeah, unbelievable. You know, it's just, <laughs> I mean, you know, any thoughts on how we can end or attack this kind of, this kind of dirty dealing that's going on inside the government, you know, so people, there, there can be real justice? <laughs> well, I, look, question, I, 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 yeah, I mean, so, yeah, yeah, that's the billion dollar question, but I do think that in this day and age with 24 hour news cycles and a lot of different internet sites, I mean, I do think the watchdog function of the media hasn't gone away. And in fact, in, in some ways, it's actually more than it's ever been because now you have, you know, citizen journalists and a whole bunch of different people, you know, looking out. But one, one misconception about Whitey too, was that he and his crew simply killed other mobsters. Well, the reality is they did not. And, and we tell a story in the book uh, of a woman named Diane Sussman who took the stand in Whitey's trial. And she describes how she was on a second or third date um, with a guy named uh, Louie and she and Louie were in a car with a third person. And the next thing you know, the car is riddled with bullets. She is badly wounded. Louie, the guy who she was on the second or third date with was paralyzed. And the third guy, uh, Mr. Milano was murdered. And this was completely a case of mistaken identity. Bulger and his crew had the wrong people. And, the story that we tell in the book is how over the next 30 years, Diane Sussman, who was in her early 20s then, never missed a month going back to visit Louie, the guy that she was on the date with. So she would go on to get married, have children, have a family and a career, but she would always be tied to this man who she was wounded in the car with on her second or third date. And to me, you know, it shows kind of the power of the human spirit in, in the context of such a dark, dark event. And uh, it really was an amazing story. Yeah, that's that's just incredible. Okay, well, now, uh, you do, I mean, you do investigative stories for Howard Stern. That's pretty I interesting. Do. I, do yeah. a, I do a little bit of everything. <laughs> I, uh, I do news for the Howard Stern show, as you, uh, as you touched on. And then, of course, I host my own show on Sirius uh, called Lieberman Live, which is every day. 
And then uh, I'm a crime contributor for CNN HLN, which is CNN's sister network, and then for a for a uh, website called Wild About Trial as well. And I blog for the Huffington Post for their crime section. So my career has been based, you know, very much on covering crime and and digging into and investigating uh, criminals. Who else have you investigated? Uh, you know, what are some of the more interesting interesting ones? I mean, you know, you're deep into the Whitey Bulger thing because because you did a book on it, but there's got to be some other fascinating cases, right? Well, for seven years at America's Most Wanted, I mean, I was on the road seven days a week, wow. you know, chasing, chasing down fugitives. You know, I've done cases of mass murder, of prison escapees, of rapists, of bank robbers. Um, you know, I've come face-to-face with, probably upwards of three dozen convicted killers that I've interviewed in prison. And look, the one commonality is everybody has a justification. Everybody says they have a reason why they killed. Or, uh, or, don't, no, I, or don't, they, aren't the, don't they just first say they're not guilty? The, I mean, the prisons are full of uh, innocent people, I know. <laughs> yeah, but surpri- surprisingly, surprisingly, some of them say that they're not guilty, but Others say, yeah, I did it, and here's why, and they always have a justification. It's mainly the sex offenders, actually, that always sort of have a rationale for why they did what they did. They perpetrated this rape because of X, Y, and Z, and that's really sickening. In some ways, you know, in my career, I found that sex offenders are even more offensive in some cases than than brutal killers. um, because Yeah, because of the recidivism and, and... and the like. Yeah. Well, yeah, for example, give us some examples of these justifications. I mean, I, I can't, I can't imagine you could justify any of this stuff, but what do they say? Oh, well, I mean, look, domestic murders are the number one type of murder that we see in this country, you know, murders by spouses or boyfriends or girlfriends. So, you know, I've heard every excuse in the book, you know, she, uh, you know, she demeaned me. He, and it goes both ways too, frankly. I mean, I've done cases of men killing women and women killing men and, you know, and, and, you know, relationships are so volatile that, you know, I've heard every excuse in the book in that regard. And, you know, and sex offenders truly think that in a lot of cases that their victims are asking for it, number one, and number two, that they just have an impulse that they can't control. And they, they don't see it in black and white terms like many of us do. You know, they see a lot of gray in what is appropriate and inappropriate, you know, with children. That's been my experience. What do we do with these guys? I mean, do, do we double tap them? I, I, I kind of wondered, what is the deal? You never hear much about it. Like, what, what, how, what about chemical castration? I mean, does that just not work that well? Or Well, it's tough. You know, you have so many civil libertarians who fight against that. I mean, I remember when I was a reporter in New Mexico, there was a big push for chemical castration, but it kept getting defeated and defeated. Look, the reality is that we're stuck in a, in a terrible situation because if it were up to me, I'd say for sex offenders, you know, you lock them up and throw away the key. The problem is that that's not the reality and they get out of jail at some point. So then the question becomes, how do you rehabilitate them when they're in, you know, or how do you try to rehabilitate them through treatment? I don't personally think that treatment works, but if you, if you believe, like I do, that treatment doesn't work, then you also have to believe that simply they're going to be incarcerated for a finite amount of time, then they're going to be released and do it again, which is what I believe, you know, and so it's, so it's a struggle. I mean, but I hate, absolutely hate to see when sex offenders are released and they don't register as sex offenders and they end up perpetrating again, and they do, and they do because they, they prey on young children. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's just that's just scary. I mean, it's disgusting, obviously, but it just seems like these guys would just volunteer for this stuff. I don't know why there's a a civil libertarian issue here. I mean, you know, I'm sure the ACLU cries cries foul about it, and sometimes I agree with the ACLU, but not always. Uh, probably mostly not. But I mean, would it be an issue of is it foolproof? Like, if they do chemical castration, could these guys be released? I mean, wouldn't, uh, gosh, if, if I were in that, spend your life in prison or be chemically, chemically castrated and be released after, you know, a shorter sentence, wouldn't they all choose release? And I mean, well, as long as it's you, foolproof, it, you know, it seems like it's I mean, just you, you, you give you, them a choice. They, they don't have to you, do it. Yeah, but criminals don't get a choice. That's the thing. Like, right, but, you but, know, but it's an either-or choice. It's a Faustian choice, right? It's a, look, if you want to get out, early because we've got overcrowding and we've got you know a problem paying for all these prisons it's very expensive to incarcerate people if you want to get out on the minimum side of your sentence of say seven years or whatever right versus uh, 20 years i mean that seems like an easy decision yeah i'd be for it i mean look those who those who argue against it say that once you've done your time and you're going to be released you know you've done your time and you deserve to kind of get a fresh slate i don't you know, personally subscribe to that theory, but that's what those who who support that do. Yeah, I'm just kind of wondering. I mean, you know, there seems like there must be some logic, but yeah, I, I can imagine these guys are just incredibly manipulative. Any other really stunning excuses? <laughs> that's what I want to call them, not reasons or you know justifications. Well, I, these guys have made yeah for their crimes. Well, I remember I remember sitting down with a with a convicted sex offender who reoffended. He had a bunch of victims down in, in Texas, and I remember sitting across from him and kind of reading the victim's statement out loud to him. And uh, you know, and I ended after reading off a laundry list of what this guy had done. I, I said, so do you feel as if any of this is inappropriate? And he looked at me in the eye and he said, it depends what your definition of inappropriate is. I mean, and that's how the, you know, I had just listed up a laundry list of some of the, you know, grossest acts that one could perpetrate, particularly against a, a child. And so then to, you know, to have his retort be, it depends what you define as inappropriate. I mean, it gives you a good glimpse into the mind of a predator. Right. Yeah, it sure does. But I, I just have to say, uh, you know, for the record, I mean, you go to Middle Eastern countries and I mean, it's I saw this disgusting video. I couldn't believe it. It's on YouTube and it was about uh, some Middle Eastern country and all these men marrying these kids that are they're so young i mean it's unbelievable five-year-olds it's just unbelievable and you know where there where there's no age of consent there's no protection whatsoever i know i know i, I can't it, i can't believe horrible. that you know and, and and so you know you put that guy over there and he can just lawfully do anything he wants right <laughs> that's right I, I i remember when i was in america's most one we did a case of a uh, of a predator here who fled to uh india to an area of India where they where sex tourism is a huge trade, and it's just as you just mentioned, and it's just uh, it's horrible. Look, our, our system is flawed, but it's still the best criminal justice system in the world, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Okay, so any other crimes or just interesting stories? Or yeah, I, I'd kind of like to. I don't know why I'm curious about this, but maybe it's a morbid curiosity. 
how does some of these guys get away? Like, whenever I hear about one of these, there there was that show, I, I never got into it, but I know a lot of people did Prison Break. I'm thinking, mm-hmm. how do they, I mean, these modern prisons are so good compared yeah, to the Yeah, but you can days. have all the, tech, you, look, away? you can have all the security measures in the world, all the technology in the world, and most escapes come down to two things, either either faulty technology, meaning that alarms when doors weren't working or something like that, or more likely help from the inside. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's just a matter of corruption again. That's what it is. I I did a case in, uh, in Indiana where a woman named Sarah Pender escaped. She was a double murderer in for a hundred years and she escaped. And how did she escape? She escaped by befriending a a jail corrections officer, starting to sleep with him. And, you know, and, and, and there you go. He set up, you know, he actually helped her escape. She went on the run. She was on the run for six months before a tip into America's most wanted caught her. So, I mean, the reality is, again, and I'm not suggesting that every correctional facility shouldn't do everything they can from a technological standpoint. But look, I mean, I, yeah, I actually just talked to a jail guard the other day who told me that because of budget cuts, you know, they had nobody manning the, uh, the towers inside the jail. So in other words, it was just a dummy. It was a dummy up there. There were no armed guards manning the towers, <laughs> you know, looking, you know, looking out onto the, onto the facility. And that's more and more common. So many security cameras aren't manned. You would be surprised. So many security cameras aren't manned. They don't record video. They're just there as a deterrent. But when push comes to shove, I've seen, I've covered so many cases of kids who were snatched where, you know, yeah, there's security cameras either on the side of a building or, or somewhere on the street corner, but either they were broken or they never rolled tape or, you know, so I mean, you know, unfortunately, nothing is foolproof. Well, is, uh, do you do, uh, do you deal with white collar crime? I've covered everything. Yeah. I mean, I, I've covered everything. You look at the burning Madoffs of the world, you know, speaking of white collar crime and, and, and built, bilking people out of a lot of money. I did a, I did a case again when I was in America's most wanted of a guy who preyed on the disabled and actually was a financial guy, but ended up bilking disabled people out of millions of dollars and then going on the run. He actually has not been caught to my knowledge. So look, bad guys come in all shapes, sizes, colors, religions, they just do. What do you think about prison overcrowding? You know, we were talking about these guys getting out of prison and the budget cuts. And on one hand, I want to say, let's be tough on crime. But on the other hand, I think prisons, it's just become a business in this country. I mean, we've got the highest incarceration rate of any industrialized country. I know that maybe the highest incarceration rate in the world. I'm not sure. But this is just crazy. I mean, you know, like Alex Jones has that website, Prison Planet. And you know, yeah. thinking that that's really what this country has become. Well, you know, a part of that is true. And the reality is the private companies run a lot of our jails, a lot of our prisons now, and they are for-profit companies. However, you know, the decision was made to hand many of our inmates over to these companies because they can do it more cost-effectively than the government can do it. So I don't know that necessarily it's, whether it's a private or a public 
facility, but more so, yeah, I think we lock up many, many minor drug offenders shouldn't be, you know, shouldn't be in jail, shouldn't be in detention centers. I mean, prison should be reserved, in my opinion, for, you know, kind of the worst of the worst. Anybody with a gun crime, a sex crime, you know, those sorts of crime, victim crimes, not right. victim best crime. Right, exactly, exactly. So I, I got to ask you then, because we talked about a lot about the sex offender crimes, you probably think that, uh, you know, at least maybe marijuana should be legalized, I would guess. Well, look, I think that the war on drugs has been, a, you know, a tremendous failure. I think most people can agree on that. I agree, you know, that, by the way. That, look, that being said, I mean, I've been down to our borders many times, and, you know, you can, you know, you most of our borders, people think that there's some big walls separating our countries, and, and look, the reality is that most of our borders, especially the one that, the ones that I can open. think of firsthand, yeah. Yeah, New Mexico, Arizona, those are the borders I've been to with Mexico firsthand. You just walk across. I mean, nobody is, you know, so I think that the the flow, it, it's awfully difficult to stop the flow of drugs into our country. So, yeah, But you know how to stop them is make it legal. Then there's no business for them. Well, that's right. Unfortunately, if you legalize it, you are then accepting that you're essentially accepting that it's going to be here and we have to find a way to regulate it. If you can, you know, the government hasn't been all that effective in regulating most industries. So I'm <laughs> not enough. quite sure. I'm not quite sure that they could regulate the drug industry, but certainly is it time to try something new? Maybe it is. Well, I don't know what happened and I'm going to be interested to see in a, in a year, a couple of years, the stories of Colorado and, and Washington state, you know, who have legalized marijuana because I, I mean, my assumption, although I do not even know this is it must be a lot less expensive to just go into one of these stores and buy it. You know where it's legal, right? I, I assume them. I assume the, they take the money out of it. When it becomes unprofitable, then all of the the black market goes away. All of the drug trafficking goes away because it's just not it's not profitable. Uh, so it's not an issue really of the government regulating it so much as just plain and simple free market economics. It gets cheap because it's legal. Right, and it'll be interesting. It certainly will be interesting to see what happens in Colorado and Washington State for sure, as kind of the guinea pigs for this project. Right, right. And and that wanted, I, I, I mean, I want to kind of wrap, circle back to a couple other things that you're working on. But, but I just wanted to ask you, on that note, when we've got these private prisons where we've got, you know, stories we hear now and then, they're not super common, but of the prison, the, the prisons have lobbies that are lobbying to make everything in America illegal, you know, and the lobbyists go and they go under the guise of, let's be tough on crime, you know, let's lower the, uh, the uh, drunk driving standard even more because it becomes this business. It becomes lucrative. And so then you look at the the whole issue, and I've kind of wondered about it lately, of prostitution. I mean, we've got this. I did a show on sex trafficking. Talk about disgusting. I mean, the human trafficking is... That's far worse than some predator who has a couple of victims. I mean, this is a this is a business, a global business, right? right? So yeah, I, you know, it, it makes it me is. think. You, you know, if you want to solve it, make it unprofitable for these scumbags. Just destroy their business. I, I mean, I, I doubt there's any human trafficking going on in uh, Amsterdam, for example, right? Because right. there, you know, it's legal. <laughs> so. Right. I don't know. No, it's it, no, it's definitely it's an interesting way to look at it. And human trafficking, and look, it happened during the Super Bowl. 
I mean, so, you know, our, you know, and, and frankly, a lot of people dismiss it because they say, well, these are at, ri- these are at risk youth anyway. Well, I don't subscribe to that theory. I think everybody is equal. And whether you're an at risk youth from a poor family or you're a rich kid in a, in a great private school, anybody, you know, everybody should be treated equally. So, so you're saying, and I, I didn't catch this part of the story, that people actually tried to justify that it was okay because the victims were at-risk youths? Are you kidding? Well, well that's, because, that's why it doesn't get as much media attention as, as, as other crimes, because whether you call it sex trafficking or you call it forced prostitution or... You know, it's all about how you frame it, but that's certainly why it doesn't get the kind of a media attention that it should, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Well, in the Whitey Bulger case, just to kind of circle back to that for a moment, what happened to the FBI agents? Well, John Connolly is serving a prison sentence. He's appealing. And, you know, this is a case where a lot of people got deals. A lot of people got sweetheart deals uh, to testify, with the irony being that none of them ever thought that they would have to come face-to-face with Whitey Bulger in a, in a court of law because nobody in that courtroom ever thought he was going to be caught. So, you know, it, one of the most fascinating dynamics of the case was watching these old-time killers, you know, stare down each other. They hadn't seen each other for many times, 20, 25 years. These are men now in their late 70s and their 80s, and to watch that dynamic was quite fascinating. And to watch, you know, there were profanity-laced tirades, in court between witnesses. It was it was fascinating. Wow, I bet it was. I bet it was. Don't these guys at that age kind of just lose their mojo a little bit? And... No, because you have pride. It's all about pride. Wow. It's about pride and image and legacy. And everybody in the Whitey Bulger case, including the FBI, are worried about pride, their legacy, how they'll be, you know, looked at in the future, you know, looking back on, on these three decades in uh, in Boston history. Wow. Unbelievable. It's just an amazing case. Really an amazing case. John, tell people where they can find you and get the book. Yeah, well, thanks so much, Jason. You can go to whiteyontrial.com and you can see everything about the case and, uh, and pick up our book. And for any true crime lover out there, I think they'll enjoy it because this was, uh, it was a federal case, so it wasn't televised. So you can't uh, see all the action. So the next best thing is to read all the details, and we sure have all the details in there, including behind-the-scenes interviews with the jurors and with the attorneys, with the witnesses, with the killers, uh, a letter from Whitey Bulger himself to myself and my co-author. So a lot of good stuff in there. Fantastic. Very interesting. And you also have uh, your website, johnlieberman.com as well, right? That's right. I do. You can check that out for uh, all of my other projects. Fantastic. Well, John Lieberman, thank you so much for joining us today. Very interesting talking about some of these these critical issues, and we'll hope that getting the word out there about this stuff moves the needle a little bit. I enjoyed it, Jason. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today for the Holistic Survival Show, protecting the people, places, and profits you care about in uncertain times. Be sure to listen to our Creating Wealth Show, which focuses on exploiting the financial and wealth creation opportunities in today's economy. Learn more at www.jasonhartman.com or search Jason Hartman on iTunes. This show is produced by the Hartman Media Company, offering very general guidelines and information. Opinions of guests are their own, and none of the content should be considered individual advice. 
If you require personalized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. Information deemed reliable, but not guaranteed.